0: And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. One of the things I'm curious about, so many of the people that I've spoken with who are lucid dreamers, and I don't know if there's an association here, so I'm just throwing something at you to see what your thoughts are is that they had traumatic childhood experiences. I also had traumatic childhood experiences. And what I'm wondering is, are in any capacity, lucid dreams, a defensive mechanism for survival so that you don't go like all the way into deep sleep so that you are aware of your surroundings while sleeping to stay safe?
2: So, okay. So, so I'll say one just thing that I want to correct on the previous point and then I'll answer about the, the, the trauma thing. First of all, like, correct. Dreams are like movies. So while time in a dream is perfectly aligned with time in reality, it also allows you to cut and move forward. So, you know, in movies, you can see the person when they're a five year old, cut, now they're 15, cut, now they're 20. Same thing happened in your dream. So it's not that if you see a dream of you, you have to wait 17 years to become an adult in your dream. You can jump like this. So so in that sense, dreams allow us to jump in time. But when you're going through, when you're walking in the street, it will be the same pace that you walk in the room. So that's just a correction to what I said before. Time is time, but you can still cut uh, the dream wherever you want and speed up things or slow down things if you want. Okay, now to your question my trauma. So first of all, we don't have any evidence that lucid dreams are more likely among people who have trauma. It's actually pretty random. Like, people who can lucid dream, they're anywhere. I also will say that what we call deep sleep is actually not the dream state. Dream state is closest to being awake. In fact, other than uh, the fact that your eyes are closed, if you look at the brain of someone, when they're, when they're dreaming in general, not even losing, when they're dreaming, the brain looks like it's awake. So the only way we know that they're dreaming is that they are still asleep, that their eyes are still closed. They have this thing called the rapid eye movement where the eyes move, and that's a signal that they're in the REM stage. But in a way, dreams look like awake state. Mm. And brain-wise, it's very much similar. Like all the systems in the brain think you're awake. They don't even know that you're in a simulation right now. They think you're in the real world. So what we call deep sleep is actually a different stage the night that happens just before your dream. It's stage three. It's like the slowest part of the night. That's that, that's that. So now to the, to the trauma thing, while we have no evidence that trauma has to do with lucid dreaming or anything, what we do know is that lucid of people with trauma who uh, became able to control their dreams, lucid dream, are able to navigate the trauma because two things happen. One is if you have a nightmare, you can just get out of it. So a lot of the studies we do are studies that take people with trauma and we just give them the power to lose a dream and then in their dream, they can fix things. So imagine that you were in Afghanistan and the tank exploded and you have a trauma of this explosion again and again, we can now give you essentially the power to change the, the movie. We wake you up, so to speak, during the uh, re-dreaming of the explosion in Afghanistan, but this time you save your friend or this time you run out of the tank, or so, so in a way we give your brain a chance to create a different VR experience where things are better. So that's one use. The other one is, of course, we can just wake you up. We can just say, okay, if you're going through a nightmare and you just don't want to be there, instead of enduring it, we can make you get out of it. Just wake up that that's a control that you can have when you lose the dream. And the third thing, and that's the most loose one. But that's the one we explore the most right now is because we know that during sleep, the brain essentially kind of reprogram itself, the brain changes thing. We can essentially uh, help your brain eliminate trauma entirely. We can shuffle memories or uh, strengthen memories or weaken other experiences so that when you wake up, the nightmare is no longer as powerful, not just in a simulation. So not just can we use the lucid dream to make you have better dreams, we can also use them as a way to fix things so that when you wake up, the same nightmare looks less terrifying to you as an awake person.
0: Hey, what's up, my friend? We'll be right back to the show. But I wanted to let you know about a brand new feature we are adding to the Think Unbroken podcast, where I'm going to be answering your questions. That's right. If you have a question about healing, trauma, overcoming, or becoming the hero of your own story, all you need to do is go to thinkunbrokenpodcast.com and click Ask Michael a Question, where you'll be able to leave up to a two-minute voice note for me to answer any question about anything you have about life, your journey, and healing. So head over to thinkunbrokenpodcast.com, click ask Michael a question, and I will answer your question on a future episode of the Think Unbroken podcast. And until then, my friend, be unbroken. One of the things that I fear so many people have come through traumatic backgrounds like me is they go, I have no control over this and my life is a disaster. This is how God made me and I must suffer. And I argue, well, that's not actually necessarily true, but one of the things in the lack of control is we seek to find it, and unfortunately, especially in this society, we seek to find it through prescription medication. We seek to find it through things that are not actually to our betterment, through the vices, to the drugs, the sex, the alcohol, the things of that nature. Where where does control of your own mind really play a role in this?
3: So this is also you asking amazingly good questions. Um, the the control is one of those words that when someone and I, and you can really relate to this. Um, and anyone who's listening who's been in a dark place, and including, I and mean, we've all got our stories, when you're in the depth of despair, the last thing you feel like you have is control, you know, and that's often where support from others comes in. But then there might be cases where you're in a situation which, Michael, I don't know your full story, but just knowing working in in years of trauma with people, sometimes there is no support. And so therefore you really are on your own. And, you know, you you can't really see things. And and at that moment you do feel complete. I mean, a child who's constantly being abused or going through the most horrific things, where's the control there? And so that then is a child that will go into adulthood with most likely the coping mechanisms to protect oneself, which is, you know, maybe they had to learn to fight back or as you say, numb the pain with anything that takes away that pain. And then enter us into our current society where people's stories are no longer really heard, except in a few environments like you know, the work I do, what you do, etc. You know, you go to the into the traditional biomedical system of which You know, I've been a part, but not in. I do it differently. Obviously, as we're practicing clinically, I come in from a different angle. But the traditional system is one of okay, well, tell me your symptoms and let's find you a diagnosis and let's give you a treatment. That works beautifully for cancer and, and diabetes and, you know, brain tumors and things like that. But when it comes to a complex childhood where there's been excessive trauma, just giving you a label and a medication is not going to fix the problem because you have a whole bunch of these in your head that make you feel overwhelmed and out of control. So it is a slow process of educating and learning to dive deep introspectively into your wise mind. The wise mind, that inner knowing, that got you out to where you are now where you now are so in in a state of wise mind michael that you reach out and help others um and so that in that process of is, is a process of empowerment Um, And it's over, it's a cyclic thing that happens over time and it can be multiple ways. Either someone comes in your life and actually starts helping you or you reach that rock bottom point and you manage to actually help yourself and pull out of it. You know, these different ways that it will happen, but hopefully most people reach. And and according to the research, oopsie, my little tree's falling over three quarters of people will actually reach the point that you have um, where they've gone through complex trauma and will get through it with, lingering effects but those lingering effects do not have to be um, the effects that live with you for the rest of your life because our current now biomedical model messaging is okay well you are depressed because of a broken brain your brain is damaged and that's it for life so therefore you need medication to fix it if you have diabetes you need insulin so type one diabetes. So you get insulin, it restores it it heals the body. If you have a pathogen like a virus, like COVID virus, we now have antivirals that can start fighting it. So we can we can fight it like that. When you have a toxic bunch of toxic experiences, it's as real as a COVID virus, COVID virus is made of protein. So is this experience. It becomes a protein tree-like structure in your brain. So your um, anti, your immune system is going to fight this just as much as it would fight the COVID virus. So, so this is very deep. What I'm saying, a and experiences from any stage of your life, don't. Just wish, They're not wishy-washy go-away things. They are physical, structural, protein, chemical changes inside of your brain that look like trees. This is a thought tree that has lots of roots and branches, which are memories. So memories of the experiences coalesce into a thought structure. So this is a collection of a lot of data of what happened. The source over there and the processing and the interpretation, the different parts of what happened, how you've processed it, and coped and in the interpretation and how that shows up in, in, in your signals. So this, when this is dominating, when we look at life through this, we do feel out of control. And the, the control comes back in as we realize this and you get to that point, and, and it's different for everyone, and it's got different, as I mentioned, sometimes it's a person that says something to you. You read something, or you know, people have said they've been on a train and they've seen a, a sign in a subway, or someone said something to them at a shop, or they just one day just had a, I don't know exactly what your revelation was, but there's, there's something that shifts. And when you get that shift, there's instead of this, there's a little bit of this, and then you start climbing up. And what I've tried to do with my work is help people To do that climbing in a way that doesn't make them go backwards and in a way of understanding because to rewire the networks to take the power out of this and make it small and rebuild healthy new thoughts where you still remember your story but no longer does it control you you are controlling your story which is evidence in your life that takes that's not going to happen in one day or with a medication the medication is not going to fix this that you don't have a brain disease Obviously your brain's affected, you know, and I've done a ton of research and in my latest book, I do explain this and I have images and I show my clinical trials in a very simple way. And I have a very simple way of explaining how to do all the stuff I'm telling you, but essentially this is not going to, this is not the, the, the cause, the cause, this in your brain is not the cause it, the cause is what happened to you. This is the manifestation. So the thing happens, the mind experiences the, the experience that goes in the brain and the brain and body show up in a messed up way. Obviously, everything you have, the mind needs to use the brain to experience it. So obviously, your brain's affected, but it's not the cause, it is the response. So as we manage our causes, as we identify and deconstruct and reconstruct the causes, so we re-rewire the brain. Full circle back to your one of your first questions, which was neuroplasticity. Because of the neuroplasticity of the brain, this work I'm telling you, where we focus from our signals to the thought to the root reconstruct, etc. cetera, daily, 15 to 25, 45 minutes a day over time, and I'll tell you the time in a moment, that is rewiring the brain. Neuroplasticity for trauma has, which is the main focus of your podcast, ha- and for anything, building habits, breaking habits, etc. works in cycles of 63 days, not 21, not one, not five minutes. The medications, like the psychotropic drugs, they're not even medications, they're actually drugs, and they're drugs that numb your pain or numb the feelings, but they're not fixing anything. They're making structural changes in the brain that may make you feel better and may help you cope for a time, but they're not going to solve the problem. You know, they may ease it for a time so that you can face and start dealing with issues, but you need to know the side effects, and sometimes the side effects create more problems than what you actually need. Now you've got more problems with brain damage problems on top of the original issues. So, you know, when it comes to psychotropics, it's really important that you fully understand what you're getting into and that you ask your doctors for the document that they should be giving you of exactly what these are, how they work, their, their addictive properties, because they're all addictive, and how to withdraw, withdrawal effects. And to understand that that um, when when as you are going through a process of facing stuff, it is painful. And numbing, that's not going to help you. You've got to go through the pain. It's called the treatment effect. You're going to get worse before you get better. Mm-hmm. I've had some patients that over—they that start this process, and they—and I. Re- there's actually one of the stories in my book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, of one of the patients in my clinical trial, um, who at day one, no identity, totally depressed, etc. Long story short, um, by day 21, they were saying things like, I'm not depressed anymore. Day one, I'm depressed. That was the identity. Life's a falling apart. Everything you can imagine going wrong. Doing this work daily for 15 to 45 minutes, and we can talk about in a minute what it is, um, they, by days. 21, they were saying things to us when we brought them back into, into the clinic to do the evaluations and so on, the brain, blood, narrative, everything. They were saying, I'm not depression. I am depressed because of. That's a massive growth. Then they also said this, but I feel more depressed and more anxious and I'm having panic attacks and I'm grieving, but it's different. I'm actually feeling human emotions and those are valid emotions because they're starting to see what the pain was from. They had suppressed childhood trauma. In this particular case, this person had gone through terrible childhood trauma and had managed to suppress it for all these years and kind of function, but was falling apart. And because these are volcanic, eventually they will explode in your life. Eventually these things will explode. You can suppress for a certain amount of time but they will eventually explode. And that's what had happened in this person's life. And so they started shifting, but by learning to get control back slowly in these cycles, they started seeing the increased depression. And grieving as an element of control because they said okay I know I'm depressed because of I can see that what I went through so therefore I should be feeling depressed that's a very normal human response to those terrible things that I that I went through in childhood or whatever and grieving the lost time and I mean I'm sure you can relate to this Michael so that's growth but in this society the minute you feel those oh you're sicko. there's a disease coming back you don't have a disease you're trying to process life experiences and it will get worse before it gets better but then it does Start changing. And this is why it's so important that you work for the beyond 21 days. Everyone sees 21 days. It's not 21 days. 21 days does a major shift. you will bring things up and you'll start seeing. The changes and you'll start building a new way of thinking and set etc but if you don't push on for another 42 days that new little thought is way too small to um to to override this one you need the extra energy taken from this and put in so that this becomes nice and big and strong and i'm going to put two next to each other so you can see it becomes nice and strong only when the new thought is nice and strong, which takes another 42 days, totaling 63, are you then going to remember your story, but you're not going to be functioning from your story, you're going to be functioning from the new way of thinking. And that's, that process brings control.
0: to the free event. Watch it live with us this December. It'll be myself speaking along with amazing human beings like Anthony Trucks, Jamie Bronstein, Leslie Logan, and a special interview that I'm doing with Dr. Gabor Mate that has never before been released. So come and join us, myunbrokenlife.com. All you have to do is put in your email. We'll send you over the registration. You'll be able to come and join us, watch live. And then if you want access to the recordings or more information there for you to keep them forever. But in the meantime, go sign up block it off on your calendar. This is going to be a transformational experience that you do not want to miss. Head over to myunbrokenlife.com to register for free. Until next time, be unbroken. And I just can't help but think, like, how many times doctors tried to put me on medication, and and this was in the late 80s, early 90s. And honestly, I would just throw it away. I used to get in so much trouble. <laughs> I was like, I'm not taking this. This is crazy to me. One of the things that that really stuck out to me about the title of your book is you you labeled it ADHD symptoms, and and I think so often people look at this as a mental disorder. So what I think would be very practical to start this conversation with is twofold. One, can you define ADHD? And two, can we look at the symptoms as opposed to this being a disorder?
4: Excellent question. I love that because it really puts into focus for anyone who's listening that we really have to drill down and see what's going on with the kid. ADHD is a list of symptoms. Real symptoms definitely exist. The kid is struggling. The kid's having a hard time. And uh, the symptoms are caused by many different things, which is why I said before, it's extremely simplistic. So in my case, not being able to focus was coming from stress at home. And the minute I was able to work that out, my focus came back into order and I was able to to get going and really rise to the top of my class. I was actually S.W. Valedictorian in graduate school. It took a long time to get there. But uh, what we're seeing with kids with ADHD symptoms is difficult symptoms and what we're not doing is asking the question why why is this child struggling and there are so many different reasons why a child's struggling and when I listen to your story I say to myself well I would have said about you that that sounds like an instant gratification personality because that's a person who's interested in being active things and everything around him is 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 draws him in he likes to uh build things create things and and all that but they're sticking him into a box he doesn't fit in of course usually adhd comes with multiple causes it could be trauma plus a instant gratification personality we can throw into that screen addiction or other addictions which are crushing to to kids and we have lack of nature lack of movement and exercise which is really bad. And another big one that I see all the time, especially with younger kids, is a gut dysbiosis. So the kids are just not physically healthy. They're not doing well physically. You see runny noses and bad skin and headaches, stomach aches, asthma, allergies, autoimmune conditions. And instead of saying, well, maybe what's going on is physiological, we're saying, oh, he has asthma and a comorbid, ADHD, well, what came first and what's causing what? And that's something that we're not asking the questions of. So when we look at the DSM five, the diagnostic manual, we just looking at a checklist and it's kind of like odd to me. And as a mom, when my kid, my oldest was diagnosed, I said, well, how did you diagnose her? Well, you see, you filled out this checklist and the teacher filled out this checklist and therefore she's got ADHD, which is neurological condition. And where'd you get the checklist from? And, and what does that mean? What does that mean to us? It means that we're seeing external symptoms, but shall we ask why she's having these external symptoms? This is a kid who moved to three different countries. She's trilingual at the time that she was diagnosed, reading and writing in three different languages. Maybe we wanna look at her background and, and see what else might be going on along the way. So the, the symptoms are real. And what I think is hurting children the most is that we never ask the question why. And that's a real shame.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And you know, I think about quite often this idea that we kind of get pigeonholed into these boxes based on lists that really have no foundational evidence on your particular DNA. And, you know, I I think about the idea that people, doctors particularly, and I'm not trying to like throw doctors under the bus here, I promise, but, you know, you're in this situation where maybe you're ill or you're sick or something's wrong and they go, oh, it's in your family, it's in your DNA, it's in your gene," And I'm like, well, what gene is it? can you tell me can you give me the exact gene that this has been traveled down through for generations that led me to this place and they can't they'll be stymied and dumbfounded because it's for many things I just don't think it's true now that said like I I definitely think that I'm kind of you mentioned something about an instant gratification personality that's really fascinating to me and what I'm curious about is are there other personalities that kind of fall within these different chasms
4: well, every personality is different and, and personalities are healthy. When you look at yourself, you say, okay, who, do, who I'm more similar to? My mother, my father, an aunt, uncle. You're gonna find yourself in the family, not perfectly because you're you're a different combination of, of person, but we are gonna find ourselves within the family. All personality types are healthy variants of a personality. And therefore we have to look at it and say, okay, what are the strengths and weaknesses of this personality? I see mainly that instant gratification is the we're going to see more um, ADHD symptoms with that, with that kind of personality. That's that type that just wants everything here and now and fast and interesting and fun and slightly dangerous. I know my kids were always the ones that climbed to the top of the monkey, monkey bars first and were just kind of dangling off of it with one leg. So there's there's that. Of course, you're going to have a, the, AD, the ADHD, with the which is the more passive type, the kid is, who's kind of unengaged, but they're not unengaged. They're in a dream world where everything is fascinating for them and they're escaping this here and now world, but they're finding something that interests them. They're always finding something else that interests them because they don't want to be where they are right now. So I think those are two are very similar, although, and I always use this example that, uh, let's say you have a kid who's kind of a, a shy kid, so a shy kid might do great at, at um, tasks that require real good focus and, uh, and other things like that, but th- that shy kid is going to struggle when it comes to engaging their environment and making friends. So they have their strengths and then they have their challenges. ADHD, which is in, when it is caused by an instant gratification, they have their strengths in that, that they, they, they integrate with their environment very quickly that's the kid who's gonna walk over to a stranger and ask a question and learn something new very fast. And that's the kid who's going to find novelty. And I say that this would be an inventor, a scientist, someone, a, someone who's in, in high tech, an entrepreneur, uh, someone like you kind of you know, getting out there and, and spreading your voice and your story and helping people out in, in a very unique way. So those people are the ones that are gonna shine there. Whereas someone who doesn't engage as quickly because they're shy is not gonna do as well in that kind of environment. So we have to look at each environment and figure out what we're gonna build. We love that novelty. We love that you're looking for new things all the time and seeing things other people don't see. But we're having trouble with the fact that when you do that, you don't uh, develop habits. You don't develop habits because you're not doing things over and over again, because you're always jumping from one novel idea to the next. Once it gets boring and you have to dot the I's and cross the T's, you don't want to do it anymore. So the two things we're learning is, okay, we've got to work on habits. And number two, we've got to pair you up with somebody who's good at that. Nobody lives in a vacuum. We're in a kind of a weird world where everybody kind of lives for themselves and, expect, and is expected to be this kind of perfect being. But that's not the way we're meant to live. We're meant to live within community, where one person has a strength in getting out to the forest and and finding the food, and the other person has a strength in organizing it when that person brings it home. Now, obviously, I'm I'm going back a couple of generations here, but that's an example for what we would talk about that we are meant to work together. So one kid's an accountant and the other kid's an entrepreneur. Let's put them together. They're gonna make a great team.
0: How do you really understand? your innate abilities and what, call it God gifted, whatever you're born with, that gives you the ability to create success, power, longevity in the life that you want to have.
5: About 31 years ago, I was um, the um, partner in what turned out to be a most successful advertising group. So I had three brilliant, uh, creative partners. And I happened upon a, an assessment. This was literally in 1988. And I happened upon an assessment that was created by this genius at General Electric, named Johnson O'Connor, and that assessment was designed to help you understand how you're hardwired, what you're uncommonly built on. It's not IQ, it's not skills, it's not interest. It's not any of those factors. He created a series of uh, assessments, nineteen of them, that you can take. When he when he was doing it, it was seven hours, and you can take these what are called work samples and. Those 19 aptitudes match up to all the occupations and professions on the planet. Again, he's been doing this, or his organization has been building this for 99 years. So one of our superstars at Hutchison Chutzee, my agency at the time, had gone through this. And she had gone to a good school, and she went off to an Abbey League school and ended up at our place. And she was quite extraordinary. And we were at a cookout, uh, July 4th that year, and I said, how did you make your way? How did you figure yourself out? And she told me about this assessment and how seminal it was to her. So, oh, about two weeks later, they had to have an office that they had 11 offices around the country, and they happened to have an office in Atlanta. And I took this assessment, and it was an eye-opener, because it literally told me how I'm hardwired. And what I mean by that is, I was then in my early 40s, and when I was going through school, I was a good student, and my dad wanted me to... Look at dental school because it was shorter than medical school. Well, I got into my freshman year of college and realized that I didn't have the slightest idea how chemistry works. In high school, you can memorize the formula in college. you got to understand it. So anyway, I ended up dropping chemistry, picking up uh, uh, philosophy in German and making a 4.0, and I would have slunk down. So I, I ended up going, like I told you, i go back. Emory, all of the honorable became an entrepreneur. But I signed out 25 years later, back to the well of abilities, that my abilities in science are 10th percentile. They measure those. So you know if you have the abilities or aptitudes to be a, a professional based on how your mind works. And what I did find out is that I have high idea productivity and uh, I'm a high specialist and there's several other abilities that make me an inventor and a, and a writer and a creative guy. And I ended up by the grace of the great Spirit, following those instinctively getting into publishing right out of school with no experience and doing well in that and going into advertising and doing well in that. But I could have found that out at fourteen, and anybody can find that out at fourteen. Imagine now right now in this complex world where you know people are trying to get into the best colleges or technical schools and you know looking to they follow their interest, but they don't know if they have the innate capacity to do that. It doesn't. If you don't, it doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means, my favorite metaphor is this genius named Michael Jordan, who was a genius, and then he went off to try to play baseball. Do you remember that story? I do. Well, how was he at baseball? Uh, not that great. He was horrible. Was- and he's a genius, so he couldn't hit a curveball. So, in fact, he was on the cover. <laughs> Much to his chagrin of Sports Illustrated with some headline that said, come on, Michael. Well, now he's, he's he, well, he went back to the NBA, won several more NBA championships. Now he's a billionaire and a great businessman. But you don't want to be Michael Jordan playing baseball. You want to be Michael Jordan in the flow playing basketball. And so this abilities assessment was is the starting point for that. Uh, a guy that I was in the Army with for New years was a great psychologist. We added other factors to that. Equation. In fact, I should pull this over here. But we studied the brilliant women and men scientists over the, the decades. I don't you see that, I don't know if that shows up. But there are other factors that play into this whole person model. So you've got your abilities that I just shared, but then what you learn is your skills, your interests, your passions you care about, your personal style, your values, your goals, what age you are. And all of that comes into this equation of what makes you new. And allows you to develop a blueprint at whatever age, fourteen or eighty-four, where you can actually base your decisions from the inside out. That's why I call it for "who" instead of the "outside in." So that's that's the executive summary. We've done this for, uh, for tens of thousands of people, and uh, the assessment has been used over a million people. And the empirical results are: if you do these things, we did one study with Fortune five hundred companies, and if you do these things, you're Your satisfaction, your performance, the team's performance, your, you know, being in the flow increase exponentially. I love that. And, and I've, I've had the
0: benefit of spending time and working for fortune 500 and even fortune 10 companies of being exposed to information like, you know, Franklin Covey and Sigma six and things of that nature. Right. What I'm always interested though, more so is because I know that a lot of people listening to this, this show, you know, they've, they've come through this place, which is a place where I used to be of not being clear and concise and understanding on who they are. And then they go and they take one of these assessments, they get some ideas, you know, maybe they even do the corporate training, but they still feel trapped or even worse. They feel scared. They feel the fear of like owning that. So, Don, what does one do to like really step into taking ownership of this newfound knowledge?
5: Well, it's it's probably one of the great questions of our existence, right? I mean, I think and you know this well. I mean, you have to be you have to be in your own space. The power of now, as Eckhart Tolle talks about it, instead of being short term oriented and success oriented and out of directed, you just have to get Come to peace with yourself. And there are many modalities for that. There's no one perfect modality. Everything from just being quiet, meditation, yoga, all kinds of different. Uh, whatever your spirituality is, it doesn't matter. But until you can be with your own self, and and trust your own instincts, which, as you said earlier in the show, people are so caught in the uh, in the matrix and are looking outside themselves, it's impossible to trust your instincts until you to to do whatever program you do, uh, whatever introspection, whatever tools you can learn, but then get out there and experience with your innate abilities and your skills and your values, get experience, do informational interviews, do internships and find out when you're in the basketball flow instead of the baseball flow, as Michael Jordan found out. And it, it's, it's, it's a lifetime journey. I mean, I, I don't care if you're making minimum wage or a billionaire. Um, I mean, why do you think Jeff Bezos went into space? I don't know, but he's, he's still looking, right? I mean, he's done pretty well financially. He's got a great company, but he's still exploring. And so, uh, you know, I, I just I think it's one of the, the seminal tasks that we have while we live on this plane of existence.
0: Hey, Unbroken Nation, we'll be right back to the show but I wanted to let you know that you can grab a copy of my first book, Think Unbroken, Understanding and Overcoming Childhood Trauma, Please share this episode with someone who could use it and help us move forward in our mission of ending generational trauma in our lifetime. And if you would, please take five seconds to pop on iTunes or Spotify, hit that five-star, leave a review, and you can also reach out to us on social at MichaelUnbroken or at ThinkUnbroken. And of course, you can check out our YouTube channel at ThinkUnbroken. Thank you for being a part of Unbroken Nation, my friends, and until next time, be